Welcome into the Duck Territory podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel here. Uh, gonna be a show designed kind of around Oregon basketball and the NBA draft. We got a lot of stuff to get to, uh, but first go on to ducktherritory.com. Sign up for a $1 for your first 30 days if you are not a VIP member or if you are and you want to upgrade and you want to save some money. Uh, your first year of an annual subscription could, uh, net out to being $6.26 a month if you choose to go to uh, the one-year subscription annual membership at VIP for DuckTerritory.com. So I, I strongly got, strongly encourage you guys to go check that out. Um, Eric, we're on here talking basketball today. We're going to have some recruiting discussion. Uh, there's been some news. You know, We'll, we'll kind of give you people up, updated there. But let's get into the NBA draft where – it was a night where we were thinking, hey, there's going to be one first-round draft pick for sure. Maybe a second moves up into the late first or, or uh, a, a pick get, gets selected by, out of Oregon very early into the second round. And then there's that off chance that there could be three guys picked uh, for, for Oregon uh, in the 2019 NBA draft. And unfortunately for the Ducks and for the three players, none of that happened. And – only one player was picked, and it was Bull Bull, who had an incredible slide. Yeah, it was it was worst-case scenario. I mean, and, and honestly, off-air, we just talked about it. Uh, I think worse than either of us thought it could go. I think, I mean, the, I had not seen a mock draft that did not include Bull Bull in the first round, and then I did not see a full 60-pick draft, so the, the entirety of it, that did not have Lewis King going somewhere you know, in the mid to late second round. So the fact that neither of those took place, it really was uh, unexpected, and it was, I'm sure, very disappointing. And, and if you followed the draft, you saw and kind of read the stuff about, you know, Bull and how he was handling things. I mean, that must have been a very difficult scenario. You, you've been kind of told and expected you're going to probably go somewhere in the 18 to 30 range, and yet you end up going 44th and have to sit and watch, uh, you know, a, a lot longer than everybody else who made it out to Brooklyn in the green room. Um, a, a tough night for him, a tough night for the program. And now uh, I think, you know, Bull at least knows where he'll be playing next year. But as of us recording this, there's been no reporting on Lewis King or Kenny Wooten in terms of what may be happening with them. Neither of them, at least as we know, have, have signed a contract yet. And so this is kind of, again, worst case scenario for, for all three of them. Um, fortunately, Bull was drafted because it really felt like, I don't know, maybe you can share this as well, Matt, but I, it almost started to feel like maybe he wasn't going to get picked at all when it started dropping so far. Yeah, I, I definitely was like, he's not, he's not going to slide to the 30. He's not going to slide to 35. He's not going to slide to 40. Uh, he ended up getting picked 44th, uh, overall by the Miami Heat, who then proceeded to quickly trade him. Uh, to the Denver Nuggets. And look, I, I, I think he landed in a spot where it's going to be good for him. Agreed. For In terms of Bull Bull, because while they may necessarily not play a style uh, of basketball that, that's 100% of a fit for him, uh, and he may not have um, you know the best fit in terms of entering the NBA and immediately playing and, and whatnot, um, but looking at their roster and looking at the veteran guys above them, uh, it's going to be above Bull. He's going to have an opportunity, A, to sit and develop and not have uh, the pressures of having to go out and succeed right away. And then, B, 
he's around a winning culture and guys like uh, Paul Millsap and uh, who's at power forward and, and at center, you've got Nikola Jokic at center. Um, you, you've got some other guys that are you know seasoned veterans and then a, a lot of youth and some players that are going to push you and hold you to a standard of, hey, like, you could take this play off. And I'm not saying Bull took plays off and whatnot. I'm just using an analogy of like, you can't you, – you're going to be pushed here. And the culture is we want to win here. And that's – for a young guy, that's what you want to go into if you're not going to be a Zion Williamson, uh, a Ja Morant, and an R.J. Barrett where you're a, 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 a talent that's going to make an impact day one. You know, and I think with Bull, you think about how much one year has changed things. Last year, probably around this time, right after the 29 or the 2018 draft, a lot of people had Bull in that top 10, maybe even that top five range. Yeah. And, and if that had taken place, he'd be, you know, probably put in a situation where there'd be really high expectations on a team that hasn't been very good recently, which is typically what these top of the draft teams are. If you wanted to, I mean, maybe this has all worked out sort of for the best in terms of he went later, much later than expected. The expectations are now going to be, I think, pretty, pretty much non-existent when you're taken in a spot like that. And obviously he still has, you know, all of that, uh, you know, that hype and, and expectations maybe just based upon what he was as a high school player and the YouTube highlights. And, uh, and again, at Oregon, people maybe forget he was really, really good for nine games. He yeah. just got injured and, and, and of course that impacts things, but he now enters a situation where there's not really a whole lot of expectations. Like you said, he's going to be in a winning culture. I mean, Denver could very well be the best team in the West next year. I mean, the West has completely opened up. You know, if you look at Golden State and who knows what's going on with Los Angeles, there's a possibility Denver is the best team and he could have a chance to play on a really good team or at least be a part of a really good team um, in Denver. And, and, and maybe this is a thing where he sits in the G League for most of the season and develops. Yeah. You know, I don't think that could be ruled out. Um if there are more, if there I think that's people. likely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and then the other thing is, I was thinking is, you know, Michael Porter last year was drafted 14th by Denver, another really highly rated guy who had injury concerns, and he basically redshirted last year. What's who's to say that Bull, who it seems like he's kind of healthy based upon all the reporting and you watch the highlights from his his uh, pro day workout, but who's to say they don't say, hey, let's just sit him down for a full season, really let him get healthy. Um, you know, put some weight on his body and adapt to the game. They don't need him right away. I don't think, you know, I don't think it's too, too, um, wild to think that he might not play hardly at all for the Denver Nugget NBA franchise next season. Yeah. You look at the Nuggets and, um, the roster that, that they have currently on tap. And I don't know who, who's free agents and who's not, but, yeah, they they have Nikola Jokic and Paul Millsap as their starting you know center and their power forward, and then they've got Mason Pumley, they've got Michael Porter Jr., they've got Jared Vanderbilt, they've got Thomas Welch, uh, they also have Trey Lyles on this team. Um, they have uh, Juan Hernandez. Um, they've got a lot of guys that can play power forward and center for them. Now, obviously, probably some of those guys are going to be. Uh, free agents this offseason and you know, they're going to have to make some decisions on, on where the, these guys go. But the Nuggets can very easily just say, hey, we're going to put you on a two-way deal. You're going to be able to bounce between the NBA and the G League. You're going to spend a majority of your time in the G League getting reps, getting practice, getting training, getting paid to do all this at the same time. 
uh, and then in short spurts and moments that we know that you can instantly come in and help us in, in certain matchups, we'll bring you up, we'll play you a little bit, and as you adjust and as you get better, we'll adjust our, our operations of, of how you fit within this team. And so, look, he's he slid, but if I'm going to slide, I want to go to a winning team, and that's what he did. Exactly. And really quickly, uh, I'm looking up the contracts for, for 2019-20. All of those guys should be back. It looks like Millsap, uh, Millsap has a team option. I would imagine Denver would They're be not going to. They're not going to get out of that. Yeah, I don't think they're getting out of that. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, this is very much the team that you mentioned, all the guys you ran through should be on the roster next year. And, again, I think that's what for, for Denver um, – because, look, I'm guessing what happened here is a lot of these teams, and we don't know all the medical records, but a lot of these teams probably had some real concerns about kind of the long-term investment of taking a guy like Bull who's dealing with health stuff, who's lost a lot of weight, who there are maybe concerns about – how his game translates in terms of is he quick enough and big enough to really guard guys. But Denver probably goes, we don't really need him like right now. And like I said, I'm not going to be shocked at all if he hardly plays for Denver's you know, NBA franchise, if he's a exactly. league or a sitting guy. Um, and they don't need him really right now in terms of just for next season. They're probably playing to try to win an NBA championship. I don't think Bull necessarily has to fit into that. And I'm sure it's just gravy on top if he ends up developing into somebody who can play eight to ten minutes a game for them. And if if you want to look at some of the reactions, USA Today's NBA group, um, their writers, they've released kind of like grading out who was winners and who was losers. Uh, Bull was in both categories. He was a loser because of his suit. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if anyone, out there, if anyone out there saw it. Uh, but, yeah, yeah uh, Bull Bull was wearing like a black suit with a black turtleneck underneath, and then it had a spider web. Uh, across the the chest of of his of his suit, um, certainly an interesting fashion choice. Um, I, I think he had the contacts in that gave him some red eyes as well. Uh, so a a little little interesting, a little different. Um, I wish we'd seen some of that when uh, Bull Bull was uh, at Oregon. Yeah. Um, but they also included him as a guy that lands in the winner category because this is what they said. How can Bull, who was once viewed as a lottery pick, but fell all the way to number 44, be in this category? Well, for starters, he's officially an NBA player, following in the footsteps of his father, Manu Bull. Injuries and questions regarding his worth ethic played a role in the stock tanking, and now he has the opportunity to prove everybody wrong, including the teams that passed on him wrong. The 7'3 center has the potential to be a star. I'm, I'm assuming that they're taking into account the fact that he's in a winning culture. And that's, that, look, that's going to be the biggest takeaway for me for him that I'll have this, this entire draft. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's even a better scenario than Miami, which originally held the, oh, yeah. and, and, cause I saw that and went like, uh, Miami's sort of been in a weird spot these last couple of years. They're in a rebuild, sort of. There's, from an opportunity perspective, you know, with what's going on with Hassan Whiteside, their center, maybe Bull could have actually played a bigger role right away. But I think for him, Denver is such a good fit just in terms of what the expectations are going to be and kind of the culture he steps into. And now we get to see, you know, how he performs in summer league or if he does take part in summer league here in the next couple of weeks. And I mean, I think in, in, in transitioning a little to the other guys, humongous summer leagues for Lewis King and Kenny Wooten here now to prove they belong at this level to maybe sign a contract if they're not already, you know, offered a two-way before summer league. But both of those guys, and we should probably talk about this a little bit, um, 
have to be disappointed with the way things played out. Wooten, you know, from at least from what we saw, wasn't too shocking he wasn't picked. I didn't see a single mock draft that included him, but like I said with Lewis King, he was kind of in that 35 to 45 to 50 range all across the board. And so for him not to come off the board and to not be signed as we're recording this, really shocking. And again, you kind of, it's one of those what ifs of if these guys had made a little different decision, how different would Oregon's situation be right now in mid-June if they had both King and Wooden coming back for 2019-20? Yeah, Lewis King is probably the one. And look, I remember there was that sporting news story that came out shortly after the draft's uh, eligibility roster was was finalized. So I, I want to say it was a little bit before June, maybe a couple days before June, um, May 29th or so. And sporting news came out and – they said Lewis King's decision to stay in the NBA draft was the worst decision made this offseason. And I, I remember seeing that thinking, wow, that's, that's really harsh. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Like, I, it, it's not going to get that bad. Uh, he's going to get picked. And it turned out, uh, I, I think I was wrong. And I think even sporting news was probably wrong because they even said that, you know, Lewis King is going to go in the early part of the second round and he's, he's forfeiting if he came back to school a climb of about 20 picks because he would have been a potential lottery pick, uh, as a sophomore if he had the natural progression that you would think that he would have had seeing how he, he kind of rounded into form the, the last quarter of the, of the season. Uh, and, and they weren't even expecting it to, to get that bad and he didn't even get, ended up getting picked and, I think I will never fault a guy for wanting to go after and getting paid to do what he loves, whether that's a chemist or whether that's, you know, a business guy in school and dropping out of school, or if it's a professional athlete, you know, an athlete dropping out and, and trying to go pro and, and getting paid. Um, and so I, I have no fault in, in Lewis King himself uh having that belief and wanting to do that and, and choosing to go and, and, go to the NBA, but what really bothers me and, and I, what makes, I guess more so just makes me feel sad for him is that there weren't people around him to, to give him a realistic expectation of what he was going to expect because I keep going back to the article that you wrote of the video yeah. that he had, I think it was in Portland, when he said he was told by, the, by his people that he could go anywhere from 14 to 40. In the draft, he he didn't get picked in the 60 picks that, that were there. And so clearly the people around him were giving him very, very bad information. And if that was his agent, I would fire my agent today because he just drastically, severely impacted my life in the wrong direction. Yeah, and, and that was an interview that was – I think on Monday. I mean, his workout was important. I think it was on Monday. So it's not like he thought this two weeks ago and then had, you know, some buyer's remorse. And, you know, I think he probably went into the draft honestly expecting that was going to be his range. And, and maybe he, if he's being honest with himself, he probably figured it was more like 25 to, to 50 or something like that. But yeah, there, that, that's, that was the unfortunate thing of clearly he was buying something that somebody was selling that didn't end up coming to fruition. And look, it's an inexact science about where these guys are going to get picked. Maybe there was a lot of 
teams that were saying, oh, yeah, we'll take you at this pick or that pick. But at some point, you have to sort of read through it and, and figure it out. And we don't know what – Or you need to have someone that, that can do it for you. Right. I mean, you can't do it. You need to have someone in your corner that's going to be able to be realistic. You know, and I think the thing, you, you look through, you know, if, if King had come back, and we can't look now in the future and figure it out, but you look at three of the top six selections were guys that were sophomores. Um, and, yeah. you know, John Morant wasn't going to go pro a, a after his freshman year. I, I don't think that was, anybody really expected that. But Jarrett Culver and DeAndre Hunter were two guys that won the top six that – Similar body types, honestly, both like six, seven, six, eight guys who, uh, as freshmen probably could have picked, been picked somewhere in the first or second round, came back to school, ended up going in the top six. Is that the roadmap for someone like Lewis King? I don't know what would have happened if he came back, but it's certainly not impossible or implausible that had he come back, he could have been a top 10, top 15 pick. You look up and down the top 15, there's a number of guys here that are sophomores and juniors. Even a senior was taken by your Phoenix Suns, but we probably don't want to get into that because um, that was an absolute. That's another podcast, but that was the, the Phoenix Suns did some bizarre stuff yesterday. And I'm, don't Matt remind has, me, please do not some, remind me. Matt has some real heavy takes for that, but yeah, I, I guess you know. Again, I think it's it's hard to you know uh, to say where King would have gone had he come back next year, but I'm I'm very confident, and I'm sure he feels similarly that had he come back, he would have at least been taken. He would have been drafted somewhere. More than likely, he would have been drafted somewhere in the first round, at least in the second round. So, uh, I mean, I think even DeAndre Hunter. I mean, you're you're including Hunter as a guy that that was a sophomore. I'm pretty certain he's a redshirt sophomore. Yes, yeah. So it's not only is he a sophomore, but he's a third year guy. And so you have uh, Zion, who's a freshman. John Morant was a sophomore. R.J. Barrett was a freshman, and then who went number four was the equivalent of a junior, and right. then. Garland was a sophomore, I believe, right? He's a freshman. Freshman, right. Uh, Culver was a sophomore. Uh, and then Colby White was a freshman. Jackson Hayes was a freshman. Rui Hachimura was a junior. Reddish was a, was a freshman. Cam Johnson was a, a, a redshirt senior. And a Phoenix son. And a Phoenix son. Uh, <laughs> PJ Washington was a sophomore. Hero was a freshman. Langford was a freshman. Uh, Dugumba was an international guy. Uh, Chuma Akia was a junior, I believe, or sophomore. Sophomore, and sophomore. Yeah, and, and and Nikhil Alexander Walker was a sophomore. So that's like six of the top seventeen picks for guys that were sophomores. Yeah, and you have another senior going in Mytees Bible, and then another senior in Brandon Clark, and then another senior in Grant, a uh, junior in Grant Williams. Uh, Baisley was uh, an intern. We will just use that. <laughs> uh, and then Ty Jerome was a, was a junior, and so and that's your. Now, Nasir Little was a freshman, and that's your top 25. And so, I mean, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I wasn't paying, I wasn't counting, but roughly a third of the first round were 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 guys that were sophomores, juniors, or seniors. Yeah, probably more than that. Yeah, no, I, I, and and it's I, I think that's something that has to be taken into account. I wonder. Again, I don't know what Dana's convers- Dana Altman's conversations were with Wooten and King and Bull, but I-, I have to wonder if he uses this not necessarily to dissuade guys from going pro early, but as a cautionary tale of, hey, you, you think you're getting this sort of a draft grade. Just be aware that Lewis King and Bull Bull and Kenny Wooten had expectations they'd be taken in certain spots, and, and look what happened. So 
Um, again, a, a rough, rough night if, you, if you're an Oregon basketball probably fan, but certainly if you're one of these three young men who... And it's not even just Oregon. It's the Pac-12. It was oh, a bad yeah. night. Good point. It was a bad night for the Pac-12 because UCLA had Moses Brown and Chris Wilkes declare early uh, and not get drafted. Arizona's Brandon Randolph declared early and didn't get drafted. Um, maybe the biggest surprise of all is Arizona State's Lugans Dort. Uh, he went pro as a freshman and didn't get drafted. And the day of the of the draft yesterday, there were mocks that had him in the first round, mm-hmm. and he was not selected at all. Uh, and then there's Oregon's Kenny Wooten and Lewis King, and those six players. You put those six players back in the Pac-12, and they are realistically all of them all league players in some capacity, whether that's first, second, or honorable mention. And then you have a couple guys, a Dort, a King, a Wooten, that I think you look at, Chris Wilkes maybe, that are going to be candidates for Pac-12 Player of the Year next season. And none of those guys now have the option to return to school, and that's what stinks the most is because the NCAA has allowed a rule that states – that if you go to the NBA Combine and you go undrafted, you have until 5 p.m. the Monday after the end of the NBA draft to return to school. And it's now waiting for the CBA of uh, the collective bargaining agreement, which is handled by the NBA owners and also the NBA Players Association. They have to approve the policy. And if that had been approved and, and it was today's standard, you know, Oregon could say, hey, Kenny – and Lou, come back to school. You have the option. Come back. You weren't drafted. You can fix things. Oregon will be a, a, a top five team in the country. Everyone wins. Uh, but unfortunately, that's just not the case. Yeah, it's not the case. And unfortunately, uh, tough lessons for both of those guys. And I, I, I agree. It, it, it almost, it's, I think it's the right rule. And I wish it had been ratified already and that there was a possibility for these guys to do that. Um, but there just there does have to be some level of accountability for for decision making at some point, and, and obviously if a kid do, goes undrafted, maybe he got bad advice. You don't want to stop him from from being able to come back and play college if he chooses to do that. Um, but uh, it's an I think it's just yeah it's 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 all it's unfortunate all around. I I think everybody kind of lost in this scenario, and, and unfortunately again for. Just from an Oregon basketball perspective, you know, if we're just removing the, the athletes' well-being from the, the equation, and obviously that shouldn't be secondary, but the program would be drastically different with with those two guys on the roster. Like you said, I don't know, top five, top ten, they'd be considered certainly the favorites in the Pac-12, um, and probably one of the most explosive front courts in the country, or maybe that Oregon has had. If you you know, you when you toss in C.J. Walker and Francis Okoro uh, into the equation with, with those two guys, so. Uh, again, a, a, a bummer of a day, and, and Oregon, you know, maybe this is a good time to transition a little bit. Oregon now in, in a spot where they still have seven players. We're now getting towards the end of June here. Um, Matt, are, are, are we feeling like the, the team is coming together anytime soon, or kind of what, what's kind of the sense right now about where they stand? Because a lot of top guys still out there, but not a lot of movement recently. Yeah, you're you're in wait and see mode for graduate transfer Shakur Justine. Um, he was the number one junior college transfer. <laughs> From the 2000, I believe, 17 recruiting class, and right. he signed at a at a JUCO with UNLV. Had a really strong year um, with the Running Rebels during the 2017-2018 uh, basketball season. 
Averaged 14 points, 11 rebounds. I think he shot some ridiculous number, like 62% from the field. Um, just a tenacious player. And then this year he got hurt, graduated uh, from UNLV, and uh, is now looking at Oregon, Grand Canyon, and also Seton Hall, where he's from. You're in wait-and-see mode there. And he's a guy, no matter who you add, no matter who's on the table that you could take, you take him because yeah. he's just too good and he, he, you don't have a lot of depth on this roster. Um, and he can, he can help fill a lot of holes for you. So he's, you take no matter what. Uh, and then you're, you're waiting now, right now on basically some reclass decisions. Uh, and there's two guys that you're waiting on to see if, if what they do. The first being in Folly Dante, uh, a five-star center out of uh, Wichita, Kansas, Sunrise Christian Academy, um, a guy that, to be honest with you, Dana Altman and, and Oregon has recruited as hard as anyone else out there uh, in his recruitment. LSU's in the picture. Kentucky's in the picture. Uh, I, I want to say Kansas is in the picture as well. Um, but Oregon and their staff have – they were first. They were the first school to, to you know – to really hit him hard, really make him a priority. And so they, there's a, a sense there that if he does decide to go from 2020 to 2019, he's going to be a, a lean to Oregon. And Oregon's in a position to, to do a really good job and sign him. He's a, he's a 6'11", 230-pound prospect. He's the 11th best player in the country. He's the second best center in the country. Uh, he's the best player in the state of, of, of Kansas. Uh, and like I said, Kentucky, LSU, Kansas, you know, everyone's after him. And then you're also waiting on Addison Patterson. He is the 34th best player in the country. He's a four-star guard. He's 6'6". He plays his prep ball at Bella Vista Prep in Scottsdale, Arizona. And he's also a guy that's gone on record and said that he's considering going into the 2019 class instead of the 2020 and so for Oregon, it's, it's, you're waiting to see what happens with those two guys. Because, like I said, Justine is a guy you take no matter what. But then, then Folly Dante and Addison Patterson, if either one or both decided to go into 2019 and then sign with Oregon and, and enroll next season, I think the outlook for Oregon's roster and is entirely flipped upside down from, oh boy, how are they going to have enough guys to compete? Are they going to be good enough to, they are now a legitimate, you know, second weekend NCAA tournament, maybe a, a Final Four contender. Yeah, if you add those three guys, and again, we talked about this, the talent that's currently on the roster, the seven guys that are, are ready to play, are, are all really good players. Basically all top 50 kind of four-star caliber recruits out of high school, I think with the exception of, of Anthony Mathis and, and Chris Duarte. Um so there's ton, there's a ton of talent there, and you add those three guys. And, and if anybody is unfamiliar with those type of players, you can go check them out on YouTube. There's plenty of highlights. All really talented guys that would fit really well, and I think, into Dana Altman's system. So, again, it's this weird thing where we're in late June, and it's possible Oregon still fields a really, really good team. It's possible they still field a team that, frankly, is better than the last two teams Oregon has had. <laughs> that's, that's crazy that's, as that sounds. You know? I mean, it, I don't think that's wild at all. And Last year's team, you know, the way they, you know, kind of peaked at the end of the season was awesome, but most will remember that the majority of that season was very disappointing. There's a chance that if Oregon completes this and let's say they hit for the cycle, they land all three of these guys, you're looking at a really, really talented roster. The cycle is four, Eric. Okay, well, let's add a fourth guy. 
they hit, they hit, they, they don't get the home run, I guess, but they, they get <laughs> they hit the triple, a double and a triple. Or maybe we can figure out what, what bases they miss. But yeah, if they, if they land three guys, I, I think you're looking at potentially a really, a, a really talented team with a lot of length and a lot of athleticism, um, which has been kind of when Dana Altman's teams have been at their best. Yeah. And, and I will contend that Dana Altman's teams have also been at their best when he doesn't try and, and manage a roster of 10, 11, 12 guys. When he's basically forced to stick with seven, eight, or nine players and, and roll with those, that group of guys, I think the team just for whatever reason, they've had, they've had the better success. That's, that's the years that, that they've had their better years. You know, go back to last year when, you know, the roster got cut basically down to, to six or, or six and a half, seven guys, depending on, you know, what would happen with, a uh, um, uh, like a Will Richardson or right. um, uh, Victor Baylor or Miles Norris, you know, one of those guys would, would play a lot, and then you know it'd be the other six key guys. Um, go back to the Final Four year; they they basically, you know, were were running with about eight guys um, throughout the entire season. They had other guys that they played, but their main core was about eight. Um, you know, I, I think that is the number that you need to be at, but you need to have a little bit more than eight, just so that if injuries happen, you have that guy to step in and and take over that spot. But you know, like, like I said, they need to add a couple more pieces. If they do, things you know can quickly turn for the for the better for Oregon. And then, and then it's just you know how quickly can they adjust? And then I guess two two other 2019 prep prospects Oregon has offered in the last month or so: Niven Glover, C.J. Walker's teammate, and then Luke. Luke War, I don't know how I pronounce his name. Yeah. From Nebraska recently picked up an offer. Are those feel like guys that Oregon is taking or, or, or are those kind of backup options in your mind? Um, I don't know if, if Luke Ward is, he looks like a backup option, but I think if you understand his story and his background of, of why he's now just now exploding, it kind of makes more sense because the whole feeling was he was not going to be eligible, uh, at an NCAA Division One school, and that he was going to have to go JUCO, and it was one of these cases where it was like his his grades are so just far off, he's not likely going to get himself caught up and make himself eligible. And he himself even didn't think it was going to be possible, and he was going to try, but he he went JUCO. He committed to a junior college, one of the top JUCO leagues, and and. In the country out of, in the Southern Florida area, it's where Chris Duarte, the number one Juco prospect, uh, he played in that league and he's coming to Oregon this year. And, um, but then after, you know, some hard work in the classroom, he got clearance from the NCAA and, you know, the, you know, the Hail Mary was caught essentially. And all of a sudden now here's a, here's a guy that's probably, you know, power five level eligible for the for the next season in june or in you know may late may and there are tons of schools that have open scholarships and so i think he's blown up probably a little bit more than um he normally would have if if he didn't have these eligible you know these great you know there were the great concerns um but because of the demand the the lack of big guys out there 
uh, and then, you know, the fact that he's a good player, uh, have all kind of rounded in and, and created a storm of every, I think he landed like 40 scholarship offers in about, you know, two months, uh, once he became eligible. <laughs> it was some insane number. Um, but yeah, Oregon's a, a finalist and, uh, supposedly he's going to be on campus this weekend for an official visit. A lot of stuff going on still on the basketball front. It's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, June 21st and it feels like, you know, things might not even get resolved by August 1st. And, um, you know, as crazy as that sounds, it's just kind of the world that we live in now for college basketball. And, uh, you know, that just means there's going to be plenty of stuff year round to talk about, Eric. I'm up for it, man. I'm, I'm enjoying that there's still some team building going on. You know, the NBA draft just happened, even though that was disappointed, disappointing for, for Oregon. That's always a fun night. And, and we've still got who knows what's going to happen with this 2019-20 Oregon basketball team. There's still a lot up in the air. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, thanks for listening to the Duck Territory podcast. You can listen to all our previous podcasts. Just go to duckterritory.com, and in the upper right-hand or about right in the middle of the upper part of the page, there's a, a link called podcast. Just click that, and all of our podcasts have been moved onto the site. Uh, you can also subscribe to our podcast by clicking the subscribe button uh, on that page as well. Uh, or you can go to iTunes, you can go to Stitcher, you, you know, whatever I, whatever app you use uh, to listen to your podcast. Just search for the Duck Territory podcast and. Uh, we'll be on there and you can give us a listen. So for Eric and myself, Matt, thanks for listening to the Duck Territory podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you guys later. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.